Welcome to the BristolCon Fringe, a series of readings from the science fiction and fantasy community. This podcast was recorded in front of a live audience in the centre of Bristol. Well, good evening, everybody. We are a little bit early, but uh, large numbers of people seem to be here. Delighted to see a whole bunch of new faces, so we might as well make a start on the night. We uh, got two fabulous readers for you, as usual. Just before I get to them, though, as uh, some of you probably know, uh, I've uh, recently been in Helsinki for the World Science Fiction Convention. Uh, Things happened, obviously, including the Hugo Awards, and just in case anybody hasn't heard, the Hugo Award for Best Fan Cast went to Emma and Peter Newman for Tea and Jeopardy. I I tried to drag them along here tonight, but uh, Pete has a business trip to Spain, which means that um, Emma's stuck with childminding duties, and they uh, they can't manage it. But uh, hopefully they will be here in September, and failing that in uh, October for BristolCon, you will all get a chance to drool over there, Hugo. So, um, the uh, the plan for tonight is slightly different from usual because uh, one of our, our readers, Gemma, has a train to catch. So we're just going to do two sessions and we'll do individual Q&As after those sessions. So first up, um, so that you can get her train, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome our, our local World Fantasy Award nominee with her first ever published story. Now that is quite an achievement. We'll talk a little bit more than that when we get to the Q&A. But first of all, a warm welcome, please, for Gemma Anderson. Hi, everyone. Hello. Um, So I'm going to read about half of my story that's been nominated for a World Fantasy Award. Not quite used to saying that yet. Um, I hope some of you are new to this, um, and obviously it's free to read online if you like what you hear tonight. So I'll get started. Dash Steingeschopf. I'd not long been made journeyman when the Shopfers Guild gave me my first commission in 1928. Frau Leitner from Bavaria had written to request a small restoration. I took the southbound train from Berlin, made two changes, and disembarked at the end of the line in a small town tucked between the pleats of the mountains. A ragged man with a horse-drawn cart was waiting for me. We travelled by lamplight up a steep, icy path to the front door of an old timber chalet. All was dark and quiet. I jumped down, the snow crackling beneath my weight, and turned to thank the driver. He'd already clicked to the horse and was turning the cart around, grimly avoiding my eye. He spat a wad of sooty phlegm towards me which landed on one of my new guild-issued boots with a soft splot. I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was every time. Even a shopfer's status couldn't protect me from this. I had curly hair, a sloping forehead and dark, prominent eyes. An easy target. I wanted to shout at his retreating back that I had worn my fair share of rags too that my pristine clothing wasn't due to some Jewish conspiracy. But I swallowed my words, of course, as I always had. I pulled out a handkerchief and knelt to wipe my boot. The creak of the cart's wheels had faded by the time I trudged up to the door of the chalet. 
I knocked. A woman with kingfisher eyes opened the door. Wer sind Sie? Frau Leitner, I said. I'm from the Guild. She backed away to let me in. I ducked beneath the lintel. The low ceiling beams forced me to stoop. Thank you for coming, Herr Schopfer, she said. Her voice was gravel, full of cracks and pops. Please, Herr Herzl is fine, I replied, waving away the formal title. I'm sorry to call on you so late. The journey took longer than I expected. As I spoke, she led me into a small kitchen where a fire was dying in the grate. The logs looked suspiciously like chair legs. I shed my scarf and gloves, keeping my coat on for warmth, set my leather tool case on the table and took a seat while Frau Leitner unhooked the kettle hanging over the fire. When she bent close to the light, I could make out her features. The little details of this memory, the fabric of her coat, wool or cotton, the grain of the worktops, rough or smooth, they have, with time, disintegrated like flesh. They elude me now. But I do remember her face. It is a Schupfer's habit, I suppose, to remember interesting faces. She was quite chinless, her bottom lip blending into her neck almost seamlessly, and her cheeks had a deflated, gaunt look that told of too much weight lost too quickly. Her hair was more grey than blonde, old enough for grown children. I knew better than to ask their whereabouts. She poured tea into chipped mugs, and as she sat down, burst into an eye-watering coughing fit. She covered her mouth with a shaking hand, her cheeks flushing. I rose from my chair, unsure what to do, but she waved me down. That doesn't sound too healthy, I said. It comes and goes, she croaked. I cleared my throat. I know it's late, but we should discuss the restoration if you don't mind. I'd like to get an idea of how much work is needed. What can you tell me about the piece? His name is Amboise. He's French? She hesitated, her breath crackling. Yeah, originally. And how did he come to be in your possession? He's been with us a long time. My great-grandmother took him in, helped him find patrons for his paintings. She took a tentative sip of tea. He doesn't much like dealing with strangers, so I help him with it now. I wasn't surprised by this arrangement. Many of Amboise's kind find positions with families as companions and teachers. And is it a small repair? She coughed once and looked away. His eyes have deteriorated so much he can hardly see to paint. After our tea, Frau Leitner showed me upstairs to the attic. The slanted beams were high enough to allow me to stand comfortably, but there were boards covering the windows and I couldn't see anything at all. I began to take a step, but Frau Leitner threw an arm across my middle to stop me. Wait here, she said. With her coat pulled up over her mouth to keep out the dust, she disappeared into the darkness. I heard the splintering of old wood, and suddenly starlight was streaming in from a large window, illuminating Frau Leitner as she propped the board against the wall. Perched on a stool in the middle of the room was the largest Steingeschopf I'd ever seen. Amboise glowed so eerily in the starlight that he might have been carved from alabaster, not Queckstein. Every muscle was engorged and grotesquely defined. Like with many Steingeschopfer, there were fantastical elements. He had a tail that stretched across the room, as broad and immovable as a felled tree trunk, spikes along his spine, and two twisting ram horns that erupted from his brow, adding another two feet in height at least. Veins of discoloration crisscrossed his chest and shoulders. Moss had colonised the twin hollows of his clavicles, 
and the deep crease of his lower abdominals, which guided the eye downwards to a modest penis. Amboise, Frau Leitner said, breaking my stunned silence. This is Herr Herzl from the Guild. Er will dir helfen. At the sound of her voice, Amboise's head tilted. Buried in the midst of a large curling beard, a shapeless slice widened. It wasn't just his eyes that had failed. Time had also blunted his mouth. This dilapidation, clearly the work of centuries and the style of his carving, forced me to ask, how old is he? Who carved him? Amboise's head swung towards me, but it was Frau Leitner who replied, Deloigne. My mouth fell open. Deloigne had been a French master, alive in the 17th century. Amboise certainly fitted with what I knew of the Deloigne style, oversized, detailed, gargoylean monsters, but it was impossible. Deloigne's piece were priceless. They decorated churches across Europe, populated the most exclusive of private collections, and according to the guild, every piece was accounted for. What on earth was one doing here? And Frau Leitner wanted me, a journeyman on his first commission, to restore it. It was like asking an art student to restore Leonardo. <coughs> I struggled to speak. This is an extraordinary claim, Frau Leitner. If it's true, I cannot. This restoration deserves a master's skill. I could do irreversible damage. He ought to be in a museum. He's a priceless artifact. The blue shards in Frau Leitner's eyes flashed, dampening the warmth of the gold. Artifact, she snapped. Possession. You talk about him as if he's a thing. I'd forgotten myself. The guild had taught me to see Scheingeschopfer as pieces of art to be created and repaired. To Frau Leitner, of course, Amboise was a dear and lifelong friend. I took a deep breath and bowed quickly to them both. I'm sorry, but I'm not qualified for this commission. Please excuse me. I stumbled downstairs and through the front door into the cold, sobering night. The path that had brought me here was already obscured by fresh snow, but the grooves of the cart's wheels were deep enough to follow. I should go directly to the train station and telephone Berlin. But I had left my scarf and toolcase inside. And in any case, the shock was catching up to me. My legs were shaking. I sat on the front step, the snow soaking through my coat and trousers and lit a cigarette. Somewhere above me, Frau Leitner was coughing again. My guild badge felt heavy in my breast pocket. I pulled it out, a dark bronze disc just smaller than my palm, and ran my thumb over the embossed chisel mallet spark motif. Mine had been hard won, and I still wasn't convinced that I deserved it. Berlin was hell during the First War. Food shortages had forced me to eat the bark off trees to survive, to get by with loaves made from one quarter flour and three quarters ash, hardly enough for anyone, let alone a boy of 14. I had no particular interest in becoming a shopper, but after the closure of the home where I'd grown up and the later loss of my hostel place, I applied for a guild apprenticeship simply because the advertisement trodden into the gutter outside a soup kitchen, promised hot, regular meals, and a dormitory with running water. I was apprenticed with nine other boys to Herrschup for Fellinger, a man with a severe centre parting who had developed, since the signing of the armistice, a deep suspicion for anyone who looked remotely Jewish. You've got that pallid, sickly look about you, he sneered up at me during our first lesson. Aren't Jews supposed to be short and fat? A scrawny red-haired boy with a crooked front tooth shouted from the back, which made the rest of the boys laugh. 
Gradually, Fellinger introduced us to Queckstein, the material from which all Steingeschopfer are carved. We spent months observing and then experiencing in small doses its siphoning effect, how it sucks away a Schopfer's energy and animates itself. We toured exhibitions and heard lectures from renowned Italian masters who were shown newsreels of the Statue of Liberty, the largest Steingeschopf ever created. She still guards the port of New York, wading in the deep waters of the city's harbour and hailing new arrivals with the hearty bienvenue of many long-dead Frenchmen. The bed and board, and the craft, I admit, invigorated me. I worked hard to recognise the difference between a rondel chisel and a tooth chisel. I learned how to touch completed Steingeschopfer, how to listen to the echoes inside them. Even Fellinger had to admit my progress was more than passable. By the time I was permitted to work with Raw Queckstein, however, it became clear that our styles clashed. He loved fluidity, while I was drawn to everything sparse and efficient. You favour a steady line, he once said as he inspected my latest carving, and from anyone else it might have been a compliment. I knew better. I knew that to Fellinger, steady meant predictable. Predictable meant boring. Of the ten boys apprenticed, only I and one other, Franz, the redhead boy, earned our badges. The rest had gradually peeled away. Some lacked the skill, others the patience. At least two were whisked away to the country by their parents to escape the escalating post-war violence in Berlin. One boy ignored Fellinger's warnings and never wore his mask while filing. A year's worth of Queckstein dust settled in his lungs, siphoning his energy unchecked until he died cotton-haired and frail, aged 17. I admired Franz's designs, as elegant as he was coarse. They had stretched caramel limbs, unnaturally elongated and graceful, wisps of stone hardly existing at all. The shock and the joke came when they spoke. Franz knew every foul word I'd ever heard and then some, and every Steingeschopf he made, however beautiful, knew them too. When Fellinger presented our work to the guildmasters one summer, Fick dich, du blödes Arschloch, we crouched outside the door with our fists in our mouths and tears trailing down our cheeks. Franz was given extra instruction in controlling the siphoning process, which would prevent this transference, but his aesthetic was highly praised. I, however, was no artist. Franz had applied for an apprenticeship to improve his innate talent. I had only wanted a roof over my head. My work from the same summer and every other summer was received with little enthusiasm from anyone other than Franz. I couldn't hope to match Deloines' style. A 300-year-old hidden masterwork would be ruined. And no less of an issue, I dutifully reminded myself, was the fact that Frau Leitner had tried to circumvent our fees by downplaying the level of skill needed for the restoration. The inflation of five years prior had buckled the Guild's reserves, relying as it did on the buying and selling of Steingeschopfer and fees owed for repairing wear and tear and war damage, which in the early 20s no German had had the marks for. As I nursed my cigarette, I became aware of Frau Leitner's death rattle behind me. I slipped my badge back into my pocket. His paintings don't sell that well, she said quietly. I knew they'd send a master if I was honest in my letter, and I've heard what your lot charge. I'd have fixed him myself, but last I checked, you don't teach women. She sighed and sat with me on the step, nodding at my cigarette. Do you have a spare? I did, but I hesitated. What about your cough? Frau Leitner snorted. What's it going to do, kill me? I lit her cigarette with a match, 
my hands protecting the tiny flame from the wind. The first few drags caught in her throat and she choked, but it only made her more stubborn to carry on. These are good, she said, her eyes watering. I had to smile, and once she caught my eye, she smiled as well. She was not a beautiful woman, but something about her features, the way her mouth moved to accommodate her front teeth, irresistibly drew the eye. I'm sorry, she said, exhaling smoke. I understand, I said. Times are hard for everyone. She flicked ash into the snow. He's been with me my whole life. He's taken good care of my family, and now I want to take good care of him. I want to know he'll be all right when I'm gone. As if to punctuate her point, she coughed into her hand, dry and painful. The Guild at Berlin would be happy to have him, I told her, wondering whether it would be rude to pat her back. He'd be welcome any time. Frau Leitner shook her head and swallowed, and be gawked at for the rest of his existence. Listen, he's not all interested in that showy master's rubbish. Just a set of eyes and a tidier mouth, as good a job as you can make it that won't cost the earth. You can do that, can't you? What did you get that badge for? I rubbed my face. It had been a long day and I was exhausted. I need to see him in daylight, I said, mostly to mollify her. Part of me, though, was buoyed by her distaste for the kind of ornamentation Fellinger always favoured. I squashed my cigarette on the step and got to my feet, my eyes picking out the wheel tracks in the path. I'll find myself a room and call again in the morning. I ducked into the darkness of the hall to retrieve my tool case from the kitchen when she said, quietly, the guest house won't take you. I paused, bile bubbling in my throat. Recently, signs had started to appear in shop windows and hotel lobbies across Germany. Keine Hunde. And then below, like an afterthought, Keine Juden. The collar around the necks of Germany's undesirables was tightening, inch by inch. At length, Frau Leitner blew out the last of her smoke and flicked the cigarette away. You can sleep in the living room. The sofa's comfortable enough. Okay, well that was certainly very impressive and I think anybody that hasn't read it before will be keen to find out what happens next. It's available online at Strange Horizons, right? Come and have a seat, Gemma. So that's your first published story. Have you got anything else out that we can read? Um, it's not available for free online, but I've just had a novelette come out in the July-August issue of Fantasy and Science Fiction called I Am Not I. Now, that's, that's the big time, you know. Yeah. I mean, getting something on Strange Horizons is good, but getting something in FNSF is something that a lot of people with big careers are, are still trying to do. Um, I got very lucky. <laughs> um, yeah, um, Charlie, the editor, just seemed to really like what I did. Um, had a lot of good feedback. It made a lot of people feel quite ill. <laughs> um, it's kind of body horror, um, dark fantasy, sci-fi blend. Um, it, it just, it seemed to go really well with what he was putting together for that issue at the time. So yeah, I got lucky, I think. <laughs> well, you know, luck may have something to do with it, but I think talent just possibly might have, you know, and, and, and good teaching as well, of course. I, I, gather that you've, you've had a, a little bit of help occasionally from, from people around here. <laughs> yeah, Gareth was very good to do a Café Clatch last year at BristolCon, and it was great to have a chance to talk to him about his process. 
Um, and I think just generally coming to BristolCon and meeting people like Gareth and, and everyone else who was there, it, it just kind of legitimised my, um, my, my wanting to do it. Before, it's always been a, a solo thing. You know, you're in your own little world, you're in a little bubble, and you don't really talk to people who are in the community. And then you come to something like BristolCon or something like tonight, and you, you do actually feel like you kind of belong and you've got a family and a community. So, um, yeah, that made a big difference, I think. So, um, I gather that the, the book is actually going to be available in an anthology somewhere. Uh, the one I've just read. Yes, it's out in Wild Stories uh, 2017 that's just been released by Leth Press. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Um, it's an anthology of the best uh, gay speculative fiction of 2016. I'm alongside AC Wise, Rich Larson, um, uh, Mark Rustad, a lot of my favourite writers. It's really an honour to have been uh, selected for that by Steve. And presumably a spoiler, but <laughs> there you go. There's the rest of the story to be read, folks. Yes. <laughs> so, Germany. It's in your Twitter bio. Why Germany? I love German. <laughs> um, I started learning German a few years ago. Um, not very good, um, kind of doing it on my own in my own time, using resources online. Um, but I've really fallen in love with the language. Um, and I find the history very interesting as well. I think especially the interwar years, there was a lot of economical upheaval and, and social change. Um, and I, I just, I find that sort of era really interesting. And I wanted to write a story that would um, incorporate some of what I'd learnt with, um, with German as well. So, um, yeah. <laughs> and presumably the, the title of the story, which, which also has something to do with the, the name of the, the, the magical creatures, means something in German. It does, yes, yeah. Das Steingeschopf. Um, Stein is obviously stone. Uh, Geschopf is creature, stone creature. Um, Schopfer is creator, so Schopfer's Guild is creator's guild. Um, Quechstein is, um, uh, that's a bit more weird. Uh, Quechstein comes from uh, Quechsilber, which is the German for quicksilver. Quicksilver, in that sense, used to be living silver, so it's living stone. Um, that one's a bit more weird. <laughs> but um, yeah, um, a very good friend of mine helped me uh, during a session of thinking up all these German nouns and how they could be put together. The good thing about German is it, it makes it really easy to make up words. <laughs> so I had a lot of fun with that. <laughs> Okay, now coming back to the World Fantasy nomination, I understand that you do have plans to get to San Antonio and that you've actually had quite a bit of help with that. I have, yes. Um, I uh, have had a little bit of help with a GoFundMe um, that has pretty much covered my flights now for myself and my significant other to go to Texas, um, which is um, incredible. There's been a lot of support. Um, which has really blown me away because, I mean, I'm kind of new to the community. This is, um, I mean, Dash Dying Shop was only released um, not even a year ago. So I am really still new to the community and, and the outpouring of support and, um, and help has been amazing. So, um, yes, I am going to Texas. I am going. Um, I will get to dress up <laughs> in something very nice for the ceremony. <laughs> Um, it's, it's at the end of October, of course, although I, I suspect they will probably frown on Halloween costumes after we, we shocked them in 2009 by letting people dress up properly. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they look very kindly on um, 
um, dressing up at World Fantasy Con. <laughs> a little bit more serious. Okay, so uh, I do hope you re represent Bristol Con and, and the Southwest and whatever well when you're you're over there. And, and San Antonio is a lovely place, uh, and you're at, you're there at the right time as well. I was there for a World Con, and it was boiling hot. Desperate to get it back inside the hotel. Um, so that's cool. So have a, a wonderful adventure there. Now, um, aside from that, and we will all be keeping an eye on the Twitters just to see how you, you do with that. Um, have you got anything else planned in the future? Are there new stories or anything, things coming out that we can look out for? Um, I'm a really slow writer, so I don't have anything coming out just yet that I can tell you about. But I do have some more short stories in the works. I've got a few on submission now. I'm also in the middle of working on a novella and a novel. Um, I have a few novel ideas that I want to work on after that's finished, one of which is an expansion of Der Steinkstopf. And is, is what you write mostly horror-type stuff? Um, I'd probably say that I tend towards fantasy, but body horror plays a big part in a lot of what I write. Um, obviously, growing up, I read a lot of Stephen King um, and um, the um, big horror writers like that. So I think that's played a part. And I just I, I'm drawn to a darker fantasy rather than high fantasy elves and things. I find the the more gross stuff more fun. <laughs> um, mention of body horror reminds me. Do you know Helen Marshall? Uh, okay, Helen Marshall is, is a Canadian horror writer and she's recently moved to the UK. She's part of the new science fiction unit at Anglia Ruskin University that Farrah Mendelssohn helped set up before she left. So um, there's uh, somebody that you might have a bit in common with there. <laughs> Alrighty, anyway, um, I know that you do have a train to, to catch so we, we need to let you go but if you can hang around to, to listen to Lucy we'd be delighted to have you. I would absolutely love to listen to Lucy. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Yeah. The Bristol Con Fringe is a monthly podcast produced by the Bristol Con Foundation. The music at the beginning of this podcast is The Future by Chevy174. We'd like to thank the famous Royal Navy volunteer for providing us with a venue, and we'd like to thank you for listening. If you would like to keep up to date with our events, please like our Bristol Con Fringe page on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at BrizConFringe.